Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Blake Williamson. In this episode, I am delighted to welcome back the podfather himself, Dr. Gary Wirtz is my co-host. As a guest, we have Dr. Keith Walter. We talk about the challenge uh, that it is to face some of the dogmas that we see every day in clinical practice. And we do this, we try to challenge dogma in order to maximize our clinic potential, avoid stretching ourselves as surgeons too thin, and continue to grow the field of ophthalmology. This and more coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. It is Mardi Gras week, people. I am so excited. Um, uh, lots going on down here in Louisiana, and we have ACOS as well upcoming this week. So it is uh, just a fun time. And um, I, uh, I I reached way way back in the Rolodex and found the original Podfather himself, and convinced him to come back on off the grid, uh, making his triumphant return. Doctor Gary Wirtz. Gary, how are you doing, man? Dude, Blake, it is so good to be back on the uh, the open and outspoken ophthalmology off the grid. Uh, I just have to say that you have done a fantastic job. I've loved listening to each episode and uh, still the biggest fan of this show. And it's always an honor to come back on and, and to be the to be the guest. Well, you definitely have uh, lit the way, my friend, and blazed the trail. So I'm just trying to uh, not lose uh, listeners. <laughs> so I appreciate everything you've done. And it's so awesome to have you on. And so we talked about what do we do? And like, I thought the coolest thing, um, we're going to be doing three episodes together. And I thought for the first one, we could do about like challenging dogma. Um, you know, everyone, you know, thinks differently and does things differently, but it's just crazy how, you know, some people have something ingrained in their brain, like they have to do something a certain way, whether it's when they see post-ops or what drops they use or how do they do their incision or, you know, you name it. Uh, people are deeply ingrained in that. And so we were like, who can we get to who like thinks differently? And I was thinking about Keith Walter because Keith, so, so the great thing about him, the one thing I'll never forget is I was a resident, I was like a, a sophomore or something at Tulane, and he came and spoke at Tulane and gave one of those like nighttime dinner talks on presbyopia lenses and all that stuff. And that was like the first exposure I'd ever heard of that in an academic setting. And all my, all my uh, you know, faculty were sitting there listening to talk about these horrible things like femtosecond lasers and, and presbyopia correcting lenses. And he seemed really happy. And he was like at a university as well. He wasn't like a like a, uh, you know, private practice guy like me. So he was thinking differently then. Uh, and he made such an impression and we've been uh, great friends and I look up to him as a mentor as well. Keith, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you guys so so much for having me. This is an honor. Yeah. So, so start us off, Gary. What are you thinking we should ch- chat about first? Well, I think that, you know, I got to share a little story too about Keith. Um, you know, Keith was a new faculty member, I believe, when I was coming through and I interviewed at Wake and Keith actually interviewed me. So, uh, that was my first introduction to Keith, and I really liked. That's him. how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't. You weren't that. You were a very junior faculty member at that point. I think you had just finished your residency, so it wasn't. It wasn't that far out. Um, but I agree, Blake. I I love I love meeting people who, when you get into a conversation, it, it's pretty clear that they have uh, they've thought about things deeply and have come to some different conclusions. And I really do value that about Keith. I think one of the first things that I think of when I think about challenging dogma, when I think of Keith is um, he has an interesting approach to post-op drops. And I don't know if it's just that he's a better surgeon than me. Uh, That's probably the case, but I don't know how he gets his magic potion to work. So I'd just love to hear Keith, you talk about kind of how you have evolved your um, approach to anti, you know, anti-inflammatory care post-cataract surgery. What made you sort of think differently about it and how it's worked in your practice? And it was really, uh, Gary, a, a simple approach. I don't know if you guys remember, maybe 15 years ago, at least in the academic world, they, they stopped having drug reps give us like those little post-op kits with the free samples in it. 
And so what that meant for me was I'm going to have to write all three drugs. I'm going to have to write a steroid, an NSAID, and an antibiotic. And I, and I was just a little hesitant to do that. I was like, gosh, this is going to be a lot for the patient. It's going to be a lot of drops. It's going to be a lot of, you know, prescriptions, co-pays, you know, callbacks from the pharmacy. How can I make my life simpler? And at that time, I was involved in a lot of NSAID studies where we did NSAID alone in one group for post-op pain, inflammation of cataract surgery, and nothing in the other group, no steroid in either group. Of course, steroid was a rescue, right? So I thought, you know what? I really like this, this new drug. I think it was Zybrom. I like, I like this Zybrom works pretty well. It's like my favorite NSAID. It's not toxic. And um, Bromfenex seems like a good molecule, works well. It's just twice a day at that time. So I thought, you know what? What if I just prescribed the NSAID? like these studies did. And then I can always add the steroid if I need to. That was kind of my sort of thinking outside the box. Like, you know, we'll just add the steroid if we need to. That'll keep it easy for the patient. And at that time, it was just a steroid and an antibiotic. And I thought that was pretty simple for the patients. And so- an NSAID. An NSAID. I mean, sorry, an, yeah. sorry, an NSAID, twice a day, no tapering, no, you know, no difficulties with grandma trying to figure out a tapering schedule. And then just the, the antibiotic. So- I tried it and I think I had a fellow at the time and after about 200 cases, she was like, you know, we haven't added a, a steroid in anybody. Like we've gone 200 cases with none. And I was like, really? We should study this. Like we should write a paper about it. And so that's where it kind of started. And then it just sort of evolved from there. We started looking at like CME data. We started looking at, you know, post-operative um, uh, inflammation data. And what we noticed was the only time I really needed a steroid is if they had a prior history of uveitis. So that kind of made sense. They get more inflammation in those cases, or if they had any kind of retained cortex or lens fragment, then of course they probably had more T cell inflammation and they needed it. But I kind of stuck with the Bronfenac uh, molecule over the years. It's evolved into just once a day. And then I also jumped on the bandwagon with just Moxie in the eye. So I don't use a topical antibiotic. That's been going on for like six years. So the last six years, I've been doing just Bronfenac once a day, starts two days before, and that's the only topical drop. I do moxie in the eye at the end of intracameral moxie in the eye at the end of surgery. We've done pa published papers on low CME rates. We've published papers on our comparison to other historical data. We published one page paper looking at different regimens, you know, different ways doctors do it at, at wake. And the CME rate has been incredibly less than what I had before when I was using steroids mostly and not. And so it's like 0.1%, 0.4% at the most. And so less than half percent of CME in our patients. And this is OCT defined CME and also um, and, and less inflammation than you would think. So how did you, so when you did that, like how many, how many, how many faculty at Wake Forest where you're a professor do what you do? Versus do it the old-fashioned way with multiple drops. They do. None, none of them do it the way I do. <laughs> that's, my, that's my point. And that, that's the point of this podcast is I'm listening to you. And I'm just being honest. Like, I'm listening to you. And I'm like, I believe you, number one. Uh, number two, I, I think that's great. Number three, like, I don't know if I'm going to change what I'm going to do. That's the whole point of dogma is like, why? why? I mean, I, I know why I'm not doing changing this because I'm just, I have the three-in-one imprimis drop. So it's already in there anyway. So it's like, whatever. Maybe if I was still using the three-in-one, I would. But you know, it's just crazy how, Gary, how, how geared we are to like, even when we're listening to this, we're kind of like, yeah, but what I'm doing is working. But like, it's, <laughs> it, it sucks having to be on three different drops, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to stop. I want to go back to something that Keith said, because I feel like, it, I don't think it was quite 15 years ago where they where the where the reps, I think Allergan and um, Alcon, they were providing these kits. Right. This was, I think, about 2010, because I had been out of practice long enough to be, I finished in 2008. This was sort of the way everybody did it. And, you know, this is the unspoken rule. And Keith, you tell me if I'm wrong here, okay? At least the impression I got was, we're going to give you a kit, we're going to give you the Pred Forte, and we're going to give you the Nevinac or whatever the uh, the, uh, the non-steroidal is, as long as you write the Vigamox or the or the um, the Gaddy, um, you know, kind of even Steven. Right. So the kind of the expectation was we're going to give you enough samples of the other, so the patient only has to fill one prescription, and we're going to give you a nice kit that has like sunglasses, a patch, some tape, and and like a little bag, like a little zipper bag, and it was like this fantastic little deal, but 
I think when there were some issues with sampling and whether the antibiotic was off-label and whether that was promoting something off-label, there was kind of this gray area. And it was like in the dark of night, both companies came to the same conclusion that like that program is done and it will never happen again. The, the tectonic plates of prescribing habits shifted that day. That is why I think Imprimis has, has found its way. I use ocular science, Blake, basically same thing, three in one drop. Um, that's why Keith changed his, but there was like this one day where everything changed. And sometimes I think it's those moments where you do have to step back and say, okay, this has always worked for me, but now there's a new, new challenge. How do I, how do I reevaluate what I'm doing? I mean, is that kind of what you thought? Yeah. I I think the only difference is um, I think it was earlier for academics. I think academics had kind of like, Oh, you know, this is, this is like you said, this is uh, inducing us to prescribe a certain drop or certain brand, you know, and you're right. That's exactly right. They give us the pred and then maybe give us the Ketorolac and then we had to, you know, write the antibiotic. And I think way back when it was like Cipro or something different, and then it ended up being Gaddy and then, you know, changed, but that it was probably just a few years before what you, you what you just described, Gary, where, where both companies decided, okay, we're shutting it down too. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of how it, it started. And you're right. That's forced me to do something different. And like uh, Blake said earlier, just sort of, you know, like, let's think outside the box, you know, how can we make this, you know, a win-win for our, our patients, you know, how can we make this easier for our patients? And so, you know, again, that's kind of what I've stuck with. Cause I like my once a day, you know, grandma doesn't have to have her grandson get off work to put drops in her eyes at four times a day. And, you know, we, we look at, I think the other thing too, I, I had to realize that I had to tolerate some cell, like I see cell at a week or two. Uh, we'll talk about post-ops, but, you know, depending on when you see them, you'll see some cell, but, you know, do we have to treat the cell just because we see it? So I don't treat the signs. I just treat the symptoms. If the patient actually has photophobia and irritation, a red eye, yeah, I'll treat them with steroids. I'm not, I'm not anti-steroid that much. I will do it, but I don't think they need it in every case. I think just because you see some cell doesn't mean they have an iritis. I think it's different with with post-op inflammation. Well, let's talk about post-ops if we can. So, so my thing, you know, I'll, I'll go next. I mean, my thing that I've been talking to, to both of you and a lot of our friends around the country um, is what we've been doing since COVID. So uh, since March of 2020, you know, we've done, you know, over 5,000, um, uh, more than 5,000 uh, uh, cataract surgeries uh, without doing a single post-op visit on day one for routine cataract surgery. And I want you guys to punch holes in this because it started off, you know, with, well, it's the pandemic and we're trying to limit, um, you know, exposure and all that stuff. And so we immediately went to telemedicine exams on day one. And so this is an audio visual. It's not a phone call. I actually look at their eyes, me, myself, I look at their eye. I'm able to see that they have iris details. So their cornea is clear, eyes white and quiet. The patient's happy. They're smiling. They're, 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 they're all those things. Um, and after doing that, once COVID sort of eased a little bit and it's sort of waned back and forth, but we're kind of at this moment now where I was talking to my dad and our partners and I'm like, you know, I think we should keep this. I, I don't know that we need to have them come back in because, you know, on a typical day, you know, I'll do 25 to 35 cataracts somewhere in that zone. And these folks were showing up in our place the next day, you know, taking up slots uh, that we could have other, uh, other patients we could be helping um, and they, and some of them are driving 45 minutes an hour just for me to, you know, walk in and for 90 seconds say, yeah, you look great. You know, it was just a total waste of time um, for the vast, vast majority. So, you know, in my mind, as long as I'm looking at them virtually on their eye day one um, and, and, and they're happy and the eye looks great, um, I feel I feel like I'm doing right uh, and I think I'm doing the ethical thing. Uh, and the right thing by not forcing them to drive. They all have transportation issues, or many of them do. Um, they get to opt into this or opt out. So we have a sheet that uh, that, that OMIC actually published uh, last year, where it's a, it's a sort of template, uh, uh, you know, consent. So they they're choosing to to do this. They're not choosing to come in instead. Um, and there's only a handful of things that you're worried about, you know, looking at on day one anyway. And, and a few of them are not really a huge deal. How many opt in that they, that, I mean, how many opt out that they want to come in and see you? What's, do you look at that? That's an interesting. Zero percent. So 100, so, so, so 
So literally, or like you're way that. more popular than that. Come on, I don't believe no, that. I think I can't believe no one wants to see your face the next day. Come on, nobody, nobody. A hundred percent of them opt 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 into the virtual visit. You know, and, and and you know the few things that you're thinking about that that are that, that are even on your mind. There's like four things. It's IOP spike. Um, it is uh, a corneal abrasion. Um, it is um, um, the third thing is a wound leak, and the fourth thing is TAS. Right. So three of those things aren't huge deals. I mean, if they do have it, so for pressure spike, I give them Diamox the night of and the next morning, as long as they don't have an allergy. Uh, and these are non-glaucoma patients, remember. So if they have glaucoma, I'm making them come in because I did a MIG, so I want to check their pressure day one. So non-glaucoma, routine cataract surgery. So I'm not worried about pressure spike. Um, you know, for the corneal abrasion, they're going to tell me, ouch, this hurts. I can't see what's going on. That patient's coming in. Uh, a wound leak, man, I feel like I do a pretty good job sealing the wounds. Uh, that thing's going to seal up within a day or two anyway, and we're doing intracameral antibiotics, and I'm, t I'm treating topically with the three-in-one infamous. So I feel like I'm okay there. And TAS, how many times do you see TAS in a career? And if you are going to see it, usually their eyes are going to be red and angry, and they're not going to be seeing very well, and, and it's going to be off. So we have a very low threshold to bring them in. So guys, why am I wrong? Why is this bad that I'm doing this? So I'll, I'll, I'll poke holes in it as best I can. Um, and, and first of all, Blake, I think this is how we advance our field. People are willing to take maybe a little bit of risk or just looking at a situation differently. We evaluate and appreciate people who do things differently because we all learn, right? And so you're just taking a, a different approach. It's not that you're not seeing them. You're just not seeing them in a traditional setting. So I think that's that's really a, a distinction we should make. You are seeing them, just not in a traditional setting. You're able to use different tools uh, to be able to care for them. And I think that's kind of important. One thing I'll say is, you know, it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? It's like, you know, maybe you can go 5,000 cases and not have a problem, but maybe you can't go 10,000 cases. And so at some point, there will be a situation and whether or not you would have caught it by seeing them in the office or not is would be up for debate. But at some point, something might happen where looking back on it, someone might say, well, if they had come in, you, you might have you might have caught it. So fair or not fair, you know, things happen sometimes and, and we don't catch everything. So I would worry just medical legally, not practically. I think practically um, there's really not much you know, to, to say about, it. I think you're doing a good job, but medical legally, I think because it's just a little bit different, you might open yourself up to a little bit of risk. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, we do a lot of co-management in our office. So I think part of the, the problem or pressure you're feeling is if you have to do everything yourself, there's just, a, you have a limited bandwidth. There's just a limited number of people that you can see. So whether, you know, so I don't see a whole lot of my own post-ops because we co-manage you know, a, a fair percentage of our, of our cases. And it, it does the same thing. It depressurizes our clinic. Patients have to choose it themselves. So if patients don't choose co-management, they're coming back to our office. So it does the same thing. They get that choice. But if they have an optometrist that is in their hometown, I'm happy to co-manage that. And the optometrist is seeing them getting a pressure, you know, checking for the things that you identified and then notifying us if there's any issue uh, that we need to evaluate. So for us, we found the pressure release in terms of capacity to care for patients in co-management. Um, and I feel like it has um, worked really well for our practice. That's a good point. I mean, it's not for everybody. We don't do a whole lot of co-management. So so for us, we're having to see and My own ODs are having to see them. So like, gosh, why am I seeing 20 cataracts when I could be seeing some dry eyes? I don't know, Keith, what you do, you do a little bit differently with your post-op FACOs. Yeah, I, I don't see them at, like, like I think the tradition or the dogma is to see them at one week. I do see them at one day. I do, sometimes I do same, same day post-ops if I'm going out of town the next day. I'll, I'll just say this, Blake, I actually like your idea. I've never thought about it. But with the advent of telemedicine and, and doing a Zoom call, I think it kind of makes a lot of sense. And I know elderly patients can fall and they have issues getting into the hospital, especially our hospital right now, just closed the, uh, one of the parking decks to build another wing. And so like, it's a huge deal. So saving them that time and effort on that first day, when you said, like you said, most likely nothing's going to go wrong. And, and probably you could, you, you could reassure any patient, you know, if their vision is blurred the first day, or they're having a little scratchiness or a little flicker of light on the side on the first day, like some of them do, you could probably reassure 99% of those patients and not need to see them. So I, I actually like your idea. I think it's a good one and I might adopt it. 
My my other thought though on post-op is, you know, do we really need to see them at a week? I've never done the one week post-op. A lot of my partners do. And I do a lot of eyes two weeks apart. And I, my thought is, why do I see them at one week in between when it's just most likely they're going to do fine. And I can see them on the, in the holding area if I need to. A lot of times a fellow will check them in the holding area and they'll, and then they'll let me know, oh, they're doing great or they're not doing great. Most of the time they're doing great, right? So I'll go ahead and do the second eye and then everything's fine. Then I'll see them two weeks after that. My, my thought is the one week visit is really not necessary. They'll call you if they need to see you. I think that's the key is they really will call you if they're not happy with their vision, their expectations weren't met with the multifocal lens. If they, you know, got a little redness or a little bit of irritation, then they'll call us and I'm happy to see them. I always say, yes, come in. Yes, come in. It's always yes. My staff knows just to put them on the schedule. We don't even have to ask me anymore. Um, but then the real question we're thinking about this dogma thing, what, what, what about, what if after the second eye, do I need to see him at two weeks? Can I just see him at a month, like one day in one month? Do I really need to see him at two weeks? Cause most of the time, I'm just sort of patting them on the back and they're patting me on the back and we're like slapping high fives and they're doing great. So I don't even know if we need to do that. And then again, with co-management, maybe the same thing. I'm not even sure the optometrists need to see them uh, if they're doing really well. So Keith, you're seeing them in like, uh, like in the PACU before they go roll back for their second eye pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the big, the big challenge that people would say is like, Oh, well, you want to refract the first eye to see if you need to like move the second eye. But I can't remember the last time I had to do that because of right. modern formulas and with auras, kind of like my backup. Like I'm not really cheating the second eye as much anymore. I was just taught to do that in residency. Right. So I'm like, oh, this 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 one week refraction for the first eye is so important because I may want to move my lens choice a half diopter, but man, I rarely do. You know, like right. because of modern formula. As we're talking about challenging dogmas, you know, dogma, et cetera. I think the biggest dogma or maybe the biggest elephant in the room is immediate sequential uh, bilateral cataract surgery, right? That's the biggest dogma um, around, like we don't do both eyes on the same day. And obviously there are major financial implications for surgery centers, institutions, and us for not doing that. But when you, you talk, when we talk about like the stupid things or the things that we do just because we like bureaucratically can't do them. Bilateral cataract surgery, like checks all of these boxes, right? It increases our efficiency. You know, they could come back for one post-op day, one visit possibly, and then maybe come back in a month. We're generally not, you know, re, you know, redoing the, you know, lens formulas or, or repeating biometry, you know, all the things we used to think about. And then with, with intracameral antibiotics or wound construction, you know, if your end ophthalmitis rate is, you know, like one in 5,000, which, you know, in our, in our practice, that's about where, where we're at. To have a case of bilateral end ophthalmitis, it would take like 23,000, or sorry, 23 million cases, you know, to have a case of bilateral end ophthalmitis. Like on that, we'll never do that in our lifetime, right? That would be like one in every eight years in the United States, there might be one and an ophthalmitis is treatable. So it's not to say that we, we would like that, but what do you guys think? This has to be, this has to be coming in our, in our very near future. I know there's some people working on this, but everything in, in life, we talk about inflation and prices like continue to go up. There is deflation in, in medicine. Our prices continue to go down. I think it's the only sector in the United States where pressure, where price continues to go down in terms of reimbursement. And thankfully we have refractive, et cetera, those sort of things that help us. But I mean, if it were sent, you could build the same and, and you'll get the same, you know, uh, fees covered. Would you guys do bilateral, you know, sequential cataract surgery tomorrow? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I would. Absolutely. I remember what I was involved in the first LASIK study at Emory back in 95. And we had a study where we did, you know, bilateral same day or, or sequential LASIK two weeks apart. And the whole thought was, you know, maybe like Blake just said, maybe you do one eye, see how it does. Right. And then you kind of adjust the nomogram for the second eye. And, you know, the results actually ended up being exactly the same. Like Blake said, rarely change anything for the second eye, but the satisfaction rate on doing both eyes the same day with LASIK was over the, you know, out the roof, you know, crazy higher. And so, I think that, you know, with same thing with cataract surgery, I'm sure it would be, unless there was like super dense lenses 
or you had a problem with the first eye, you know, then you would abort, you know, bilateral, of course. Right. right. But I think on routine cataract surgery, everything goes well. You know, you may tell them you're not going to be able to drive for a day or two just in case they're blurry or something. You'd let them know that ahead of time. But gosh, yeah, I think the convenience patients ask all the time, right? Hey, can we get both eyes the same day? And I'm always like, no. Right. You know, know. (laughs) for no good reason, but no, we can't. It's just, you know, again, financial, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or bilateral yeggs. Edna won't even let us do one eye. So they let us do both. Right. (laughs) You know, it's it's funny speaking about lateral yeggs. So, so for patients who choose um, uh, presbyopia correcting lens in our practice, we do not charge uh, for their YAG capsulotomy because, you know, if they're having some issues, like, you know, those lenses can be kind of testy if you have even a little bit of PCO. So let's say like six, eight weeks out, you know, where technically you can't bill for a YAG. Um, we said, you know what, even if you get a, a PCO a year from now, we're, it's just included in your package, right? So as a result, when they need a YAG, we do bilateral YAGs. Right. Because there's no financial. So so our partners are like, well, it doesn't really make any difference financially. So that's just the truth. So I feel like the second that cataract surgery gets reimbursed by lateral sequential, I don't think it's going to be dogma. I think it's going to become quick. That's going to be the dogma. It's going to quickly become that, you know, it's going to flip that tectonic shift that you talked about, you know on a surgical level. It would be so much easier for the drops for like the, you know, like you said, the post-op Gary, the one day, then the two week or four week or whatever, you know, it saves so much, uh, you know, clinic time, tech time, office time, callbacks, all that stuff. And the most important thing is they could never say, I don't remember any of this from last time. Oh, that'd be so great. That <laughs> is my, so great. that would be top on my list. I don't ever want to hear another patient. Oh my gosh. Because yeah. it drives me crazy and I don't have a good explanation. And I try to tell people that it's normal, but they feel like they've been duped. I know. Gary, I got you. Person. Gary, Gary, I, 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 I got you, man. You have to diagnose them. So the, the, the amazing Yoda. Um, oh, Steve Dell. No, no, actually, this is a Rob Weinstock. Oh, uh, okay. He, he diagnoses them with second eye syndrome. I thought that was a Keith Walter. Is that you? <laughs> Okay, maybe maybe okay. maybe you two. I do that it. too. But, I but say I, second. But, I but we literally, yeah. I give them a pink sheet now. Yeah, we did. It's this huge pink sheet, and, and I'll tell you what I do. I literally have um, the, the gal that that wheels the patient out of our OR into the parking lot for the the patient to be picked up. Um, my, she hands this this oversized pink sheet. It's not eight and a half by eleven. It stands out. We call it the pink fridge sheet. Put it on your fridge. It's pink. And we hand it to the driver, not the patient that's been, you know, on drugs, getting cataract surgery. And, and, and we kind of, and, and right there at the top, it talks about second eye syndrome. And I have never had a patient mention it since then. We did that since COVID as well. So I'll send you a, a, a PDF, but you got diagnosis. So I actually, I actually talked to Keith about this about a year ago and I put together my own pink sheet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and my own pink sheet is sort of, Keith has the best one that I've seen and I stole a lot of stuff. And his is basically like everything that your neighbor and the person you go to church with um, won't tell you about cataract surgery, but is actually true. Is that, is that kind of true? Is that kind of, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And it basically goes through like, here's the real deal. Here's what to really expect after cataract surgery. He talks about the second eye, et cetera. So I I thought I was going to, you know, do it even better. And I talk about, you know, all these things. And specifically I say, it's very likely on the second eye that you may see, it may seem like you're more aware you may feel like you are um, more awake during the second eye, but trust us, this is just a sensation because after you have said the first time, the, amne- the amnesia effect isn't quite as strong. Our goal is not to put you to sleep or erase your memory, it's to keep you comfortable. We want you to be nice and comfortable. If at any time during surgery you're not comfortable, just please speak up. We will be happy to give you more medicine, right? I kid you not. And we give this to everybody before before their first eye, like really going through setting expectations. I had two or three patients have panic attacks before their second eye because they were so worried that they were going to be totally aware and awake during surgery. Then my staff is like, we cannot give this sheet to people anymore. (laughs) It is causing more problems than it's solving. So, you know, the best thing I've learned to say is, well, Mrs. Jones, you're, you're just, you're just comparing what you don't remember to what you're about to forget. And it's confusing enough to them when they're on drugs, that that seems to take the cake. And actually I'll share a little story real quick because I don't want to go too long, but 
I had a patient with a very distinct last name, a last name that's similar to one of our favorite ophthalmologists in North Carolina, who's a specialist in, in LASIK, not Keith Walter, another, another friend down the road. A neighbor. Your neighbor, very distinct last name. Trained at Tulane. Right, right. So I said to this patient, I said, oh, are you related to any ophthalmologists um, in North Carolina? Because Kentucky and North Carolina aren't that far apart, Tobacco Road, you know. And right. he said no. And I said, we had a conversation about this, this great doctor who's in North Carolina that I know. And um, we, I mean, really talked three or four minutes about it. He comes back the next next week and I walk up to him and I say, hey, Dr. Wirtz. He goes, well, I thought it's, it's time I it's high time I met you. I go, I go, you don't remember meeting me last time? He goes, no. I go, you don't remember our three or four minute conversation about whether or not you had an ophthalmologist uh, relative who lives in North Carolina and all the other. He goes, wow, I must that medicine must have really worked last time. <laughs> so it was actually really nice. I got to kind of convince him that, that he was awake and, and we had these conversations, but most patients, they just don't believe you. They think that you're, uh, you're, you're tricking them and that something nefarious is, a, is, is, is happening. Gary, I, th I thought about doing that. I've actually thought about on the first eye asking them like what their pet's name is. And then they would tell you, right? And right. then on the second night, you would tell them the name of their pet. See, I they thought would the think... same thing. I was going to ask them who their first grade teacher was and have the nurse write it in the chart. So if they yeah. ever wondered, I'd be like, well, we talked about your first grade teacher, Mrs. Tanner. Uh, how would I know that? <laughs> but this is getting to like the eighth and ninth iterations of like how crazy this has made us. Right. Yeah. We can have a whole podcast on second eye syndrome. <laughs> we are. We are really having it right now. So like bring us back to what we're actually talking about. Maybe we can start talking about YAGs. Yeah. So oh, yeah. so uh, uh, so what about YAGs? I mean, I, 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 I still do one eye at a time because we're doing, um, you know, our YAGs in our ASC. Um, you know, I'm doing uh, early YAG whenever I need to. We're not charging our, our presbyopia correcting patients. And then, and then we do bilateral, as I mentioned, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like, you know, I, I think that I'd have no problem doing bilateral YAGs. I, I don't, I, you know, if it, if it wasn't, if we didn't take an economic hit and I didn't earn the surgery center, probably wouldn't, you know? Yeah. Same. The, the biggest thing for me on YAGs, Blake, is just, is just the lens, you know, the, the need for the lens, I don't think is necessary. And I know you probably already are, are forward thinking on this, but like I first thought about it again, probably 20 years ago when I was doing a lot of PKs and I thought, well, that lens sucks on the eye pretty hard. What if I like dehiss a wound, you know? So I thought, well, maybe I don't need it. So I realized I didn't need it a long time ago, but it's funny how my, my partners and other docs I've talked to, they're like, oh no, you got to use a lens. And here is that dogma again. I'm like, really? But it's gooey. It's uncomfortable. Does it really help you focus? Does it really help the energy? And maybe, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago when the ag first came out, maybe it made sense because it did help with some of the lesser technology in the lens in the yag. But now with the modern yag, I don't think you need it. I know you I'll don't. I'll tell, tell you, I'll tell you how unnecessary it is. Even though the three of us like had chatted and sort of game planned for this podcast and we discussed that we were going to talk about the lens with the yag. When Gary just teed it up, I complete. I didn't even think about lens. I'm over here talking about bilateral yank. It's so like back of my brain that it didn't even register that to, to mention the lens thing that we discussed. So yes, don't use lenses uh, for yags. I never have. Um, you know, I just don't get it. Gary, you used to. Now you don't. What's going yeah. on? So you know, during COVID. Um, so yeah. So basically, I do a lot of yags. Um, and we basically, my entire Fridays are YAG days. I have two rooms and I'm basically going from room to room. I've got a sliding door between my, my laser rooms and I just do YAGs. So for a long time, thousands of cases, I used Abraham lens. And when COVID happened, I was just worried about touching someone or maybe my finger would, like, we didn't know a lot about how COVID was transmitted. And I was just worried. Like, I felt like the less contact I had with the patient, the better, right? So I just decided that we would, I would just try to learn how to do YAGs without a lens. There's a couple of things, if you're going to make the transition that I'll, I will say, I think are important. Number one, if you have any significant phimosis or a really, really dense uh, PCO, a lens can be helpful. If you have any corneal pathology or dry eye, a lens can be very, very helpful because otherwise you're going to be risking turning the energy up and pitting the lens. And if you're, if you're yagging a silicone IOL, 
I don't exactly know why this is, but it seems like if you use an Ibrahim lens for a silicone IOL, you can turn the energy down a little bit and the dispersion of the, um, of the um, energy is less and you'll get less pitting. So I will say like, those are the caveats or I still will use a lens occasionally and have one near, but that's maybe one out of a hundred or 200, 300 cases. So it's very rare that I'll use one, but I do have one nearby. Um, I will say that whenever the patient, you know, so we always check pressure before we do a YAG. So we have to numb the eye. We give them prepare a cane. And, and the worst thing is if you don't instruct your techs to make sure they keep their eye closed afterwards, a patient will sit there with their eye open and they'll get enough SPK that it's, that it's hard to do the YAG through that. So make sure that you're instructing your techs to have the, the patient keep their eye closed up until the point that they're going to have their YAG. Um, but otherwise, no, I, I mean, I'm curious to know what, where do your all's energy settings look like on, on YAGs? I'm just curious. I do, I do uh, 2.5 millijoules. I'm 2.6. Yeah. Like I was gonna say 2.4 on the, on the one I use at the, at the day at one location, another location I have to go up on. It's a little older yeah. laser. I've used a little bit more Gary on the, on the dry eye thing. I totally agree. I just have them like a lot of times I don't use a lens. I'll just have them blink more and that yeah. you know, just a blink. And then I can shoot and usually I'll get through, but you're right. That does. That's the one time I think, eh, maybe I should use a lens. Not once ever in the past six years have I used a lens to do a YAG. Not once ever, not for phimosis, not for anything that you just mentioned. One thing that I think I'm going to take from this podcast and start doing is I may start using a lens for my LR61AOs because you're right, they do pit. Um, in fact, I love my Invistas because like they never pit. You can you can crank that sucker and it's fine. But dude, LR61s they will ding up and like the and I don't do a whole lot of co-management, so I'm less concerned than maybe you are. But, but, but sometimes I have gotten a call back from the few that I do co-manage and the optometrist is like, hey, I was wondering about this. And I'm like, oh, gosh. So, so, so anyway, so I think maybe I can start to use, um, you know, a lens there. I don't know. Here's the other thing I stopped doing. I, I used to, you know, check pressure at an hour. Then I went to 45 minutes. Then I went to 30. Now I'm not checking pressure afterwards. I just let them go. I, I, you know, yeah. We had such low incidence of pressure going up. But the dogma was you got to have them sit around and check right. the pressure. We well, just changed. Not- we just changed that this year, Keith. So literally, like like three months ago, my nursing team sat me down. Like, hey, Doctor Blake. Well, by the way, like we haven't had a pressure spike after a YAG in 27 years that we've been here. <laughs> exactly. Like Miss like Miss Dinah, my sweet Miss Dinah, has been with us for you know nearly 30 years. She's like, we've just never had that. But it was just. I just thought I'd mention it. Your dad. Your dad had never said anything. He just said keep going. And I'm like, what? I didn't know we were checking pressure after YAGs. SLT is okay, but YAGs. Yeah. I had yeah. no clue. And like it, it, it has saved them so much time oh to turn through 25 yeah. yags in one hour, you know? Well, Gary. and here's the thing, like, I think we should, this is a good segue into what are your prescribing habits after yag? Because I feel like it is so all over the board. In residency, we were taught to prescribe, you know, we had to do the iopidine pre and post, and I still do that. Um, I'm not sure if you guys do that or not, but um, and then we did steroids for a week afterwards. Uh, I think it was like BID for a week. And then I talked to a bunch of colleagues, again, dogma, you know, some people were like, I never prescribe anything post-op YAG. And some people will just prescribe an NSAID. And, and I will say this also, you know, pressure spikes, we've had a few. And I wonder, you know, if it's 30 or below, a patient probably isn't going to notice it, but they will notice it when it's getting above 30 or into the 40s or 50s. And we've had a few of those. And, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what do you guys, so I generally, here are my general rules of thumb. I don't prescribe um, a steroid or anything um, unless they have um, um, posterior posterior capsule retention syndrome. So if they've got that, that milk that when you hit the, hit it with a YAG, you know, they, they, um, you know, you get this sort of plume of, of stuff that goes into the vitreous. I feel like that's inflammatory. If I'm doing anything um, with phimosis, so more like AC, like stuff is getting kicked up into the anterior chamber, I'll prescribe a steroid for that. And then if my, if my, if my um, power, my total energy is higher than average, I'll, I'll consider using a steroid there. Um, what are your, what are, what do you guys do in general? I'm just curious. So we're doing uh, alpha gan just pre on the YAG. And then I'm, I've been just been doing an NSAID for like two weeks, once a day for two weeks. 
did steroids in the past. Again, I once I was like, why do I need steroid for this? Um, thought about not doing anything. I think some patients do slip through and don't get the script or, you know, we're not, we don't have a sample or whatever. And they end up, or I forget. And I right. probably think that most will do fine. I've thought about that milk syndrome, like you're talking about where you get that big bleh of milk yeah. coming out yeah. in, the, in the vitreous. They've always thought they probably need something too. I agree with that. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I could be talked into nothing, I, I guess, in most cases. Well, I, and I could be talked into giving something for everybody if it were easy and inexpensive. You know what I mean? I, could, I would be willing to do something because I think that something is reasonable and I'm doing, I'm trying to pick and choose, but I'd rather have a standardized approach. Blake, what do you do? Yeah, so when I started our practice, they were doing um, uh, steroid uh, prednisolone four times a day for a week and then twice a day for a week. And I'm like, what? You know, and so literally like uh, overnight, I changed it to just one drop once a day for one week. Um, and and just that whole, that idea of steroids, it took me to a steroid, it's four times a day. That was kind of in my head coming out of training. And then you start to see people using, you know, the compounded drops only once a day, if they're doing intracameral, uh, injections at the time of cataract surgery. So then I was kind of like, well, maybe you don't have to use them four times. And like, golly, like we're, we're doing a lot of early yags. I mean, the second that they have PCO and it bothers them, I'm yagging it. So usually it's not a huge, a huge dense PCO. So yeah, we do uh, a drop of iopidine pre-op, and then we do uh, pred uh, or Dorazol one time a day for one week, and then we stop. And I've just I've never heard anything about it. Yeah, it's I think it's something that if we talk to um, you know ten ophthalmologists, there'd be ten different protocols. I think everybody does something different. It's it's probably the one thing that is so disparate across the board. I, I everybody I talk to has some different regimen than they do. Yeah, it probably tells you that there's there's you know no no one way to skin a cat you know That's like right. there's probably all right you know or or nothing's right exactly exactly one thing that I I need help on is, is the idea of seeing patients you know prior to surgery because this is something that we're going through in our practice right now where um, you know my my father is 71 he's thinking about uh, you know slowing down uh, he already has slowed down a little bit. Um, and you know, he wants to maybe think about maybe doing one week, you know, one week on one week off, which just sounds pretty awesome. Um, and the week that he's off, he's like, you know what, you can just do my cases. So I'll do, you know, uh, 30 and 30 or 25 and 25, whatever that, 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 that week is. So I'll double my surgery, but overall our clinic doesn't lose any surgery. But the challenge is, is I don't have time to see those patients preoperatively to set expectations, to talk about lens choices, to get them comfortable with me, et cetera, um, because my schedule is already full. And, you know, so the idea is maybe he could see some of those patients, you know, on the front end for me and say, hey, you know what, my son's going to do your surgery. Um, and, and I just trust his recommendation. And I just shake their hand in the PACU, ask them if they have any questions and just kind of move on. But that's not something you see a whole lot of. I mean, I have friends in you know different states that do stuff like that. But you don't, and I know that many people do uh, like same day surgery. That's pretty. That that that's that's well known. But it's just it just seems like that's kind of been not what I've always done. I've always liked the idea of sitting them down and giving them the no rings, no read, like no pain, no gain, and talking to them about you know all the different you know we can't make you as good as what God gave you and all the little things that I do on the front end to set those expectations, to keep the, the patients happy on the back end. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that, but. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a couple stories that I think will, will illustrate uh, maybe where our profession is heading or, or where other professions are ahead of us. Uh, my son broke his finger um, a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, playing dodgeball of all things at school. We took him to Kleinert and Kuntz the very best hand specialist probably in the United States. Uh, it's overkill because, you know, this was not a big deal, really. We didn't think, but they happened to have a clinic in Lexington. They, they actually, when I was in training in Louisville, they did the world's first hand transplant, same, same group. The very, very best hand surgeons you'd ever want exist in Kentucky for some reason. So we take him there and we meet this fantastic uh, PA. Uh, PA is like, he's got a, uh, hammer fracture of the, you know, first phalanx or second phalanx, and he's going to need to have a K wire and Dr. So-and-so is going to do it. And we're like, all right, cool. And so we drove over to the surgery center and, you know, this is my most precious 
thing in my life, in my world is my son and his finger is very important to him and his future. Um, and so we get there, you know, she basically just says, Hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so I'll be taking care. All I do is hand surgery all day. Uh, sorry to get to meet you in the clinic, but uh, I've looked at the x-rays and this is what we're going to do. And we'll see you shortly. That's it. That's the only interaction I had with, with, with that surgeon. She didn't explain the risk benefits and alternatives. And I didn't need her to, frankly, I needed her to be able to do the very best job at the one thing that she does, which is surgery. And the more she's in the operating room during doing surgery, the better she's going to be able to take care of my son. She, she had full trust in her PA to diagnose, do the appropriate, you know, x-rays, get her the information that she needed. And she took that baton and she ran with it and he had a fantastic result. No problem whatsoever. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the, the handholding, the I'm doctor, you know, blah, blah, blah. This I've done a thousand of these and you know, here are the risk benefits, et cetera, but I didn't need that. I needed a perfect surgery. Number two, um, I had um, an arrhythmia and um, you know, a flutter, thankfully something very treatable, but I needed to have an ablation. And so this was a couple of years ago and, you know, had a, a cardiologist. I've been following me for a long time. Uh, he's like, you know, it's not getting better. Let's just go ahead and get this ablation done. And I'm like, okay. And I go and I'm literally sitting in the, in the PACU um, of, of the uh, cath lab. And I meet the guy and say things like I'm Dr. So-and-so um, I've reviewed the data that uh, your, that your doctor sent over. This is something that we're, we're going to take care of, you know, in the cath lab. And uh, you're going to go back and see him afterwards. And I just thought, this is exactly what should be or could be or maybe is happening in ophthalmology, where we have really bright, smart colleagues who are optometrists, who are very adept at diagnosing, uh, running tests, um, counseling patients. All of these things are completely transferable in terms of you know, getting the biometry, looking in the slit lamp to see if a cataract is there, having your criteria about whether or not someone has endothelial cell loss, like, you know, Fuchs or retinal detachment or, you know, getting an optos, like all of these things can be handled by our very, very bright and adept colleagues in optometry. And really, I feel like our highest function should be in the operating room doing what we feel like is best for the patient, honing our craft. And it's not to say that we are not valuable in clinic and we can't you know, participate and, and, or that we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that as time goes on and there's more and more patients to take care of, I think our time is best spent in the operating room, really, really honing our surgical craft. I think uh, Gary, you make a great argument. I, I mean, I, I think about even a colonoscopy that I've had, you, know, you don't meet the the uh, GI doc beforehand, you just go, and he says, hi, I'm Dr. Mithra, whatever, and you get your colonoscopy. I've had a couple of those and, you know, everything went fine. And um, I've had a couple occasions where I've been out of town or something came up and my fellow saw the patient for me and got everything ready. And then, you know, I said, look, you're going to see some like, you know, eight new cataract evals today, you know, just, you know, do, do your thing. Like I've taught you. And then they show up in the OR and, you know, hey, I'm Dr. Walter and you know, my fellow went through everything and, I'll, and I do their surgery, but I've never had a patient say that's not an idea I want to do. I don't I, I want to meet the doctor before. And they've all been fine with that. I don't do it routinely, but it has come up. I think, Blake, for you, since we talked about second, second eye syndrome, you do the first eye and make your dad do the second eye. That's how <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, I went and visited a doctor in Texas once and. And uh, and he didn't see any 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 patients uh, pre-op, post-op, nothing. Um, he would meet them on the day of surgery, and he would do their their surgery. And and his clinic day consists of him sitting in his office at the clinic, uh, doing everything else, working on the business. He owns his business, you know, working on the, the surgery center, answering emails, doing consulting. And you know, the second that there was an issue, um, you know, that he would get a phone call, and they would they would bring him down, and he'd go see the patient who had a complaint if the optometrist couldn't handle it or whatever. And I was like, man, this seems at the time I was thinking, gosh, I, I, this is just too far away. Like I'd like to be closer to the patient. Like I want to have that interaction with them. I want to set expectations. I feel like that would lead to less touch-ups, less explants, less unhappy patients. But, you know, now, you know, six years in and doing the volume that I'm doing, which is very similar to what this doctor was doing. 
Now I totally get it. And if I'm about, and if I'm about to do, you know, go 2x, if I'm about to do twice the volume, like my all my all this other my dad's surgeries and all mine, I physically can't be two places at once. I just can't do it. So I'm trying to think the most ethical approach to do it. Maybe, you know, for all the, the presbyopia IOL patients that choose that, maybe I can like schedule like a telemedicine call with them, you know, the week before surgery and say, hey, just I, I see that you chose that lens. You know, here are a couple of things I just wanted to kind of over communicate to you. I think maybe that'd give me more peace of mind. Your standard cases, you know, monofocal cases, torx, I'm not as concerned about. Like, I, I don't think I, I'm not going to have any explants there for the most part. Um, so maybe I could just limit, you know, maybe I could just, you know, have him do all that. But just for the multifocal patients, I can you know, do a telemed exam. I don't know, but we're going to have to figure yeah. that out. I'll say this, Blake. I think that don't underestimate the um, how much an optometrist can do or help you in your practice. I will tell you that I think some of the finest people that I've ever met or worked with, um, at least, you know, in my, my career are the ODs in my practice, you know, Hal Finley, Marty Smith, Tanya Patel. I'm, they routinely, um, just overwhelm me with, with information data. I mean, they are so good with patients and investing in, you know, training your optometrist to be a clone of you is probably, I think, the, the best thing you can do because um, they're, they are so helpful um, at making a practice run. So that's just yeah. my, that's my two cents. Yeah, we, ha we have 11 optometrists that, that work side by side with us. And our practice was started by optometrists. My grandfather was an optometrist. So, you know, Williams and us and our, so we're, we're, we're started and we've always worked hand in hand. So I'm with you. It's just, but even despite me knowing that, it's just hard to give that up. And that's the whole point of this podcast. Dogma. Dogma. Yeah. Dogma. Dogma, baby. So, so I think that'll bring us home. Um, and uh, I really, really appreciate our guest, Dr. Keith Walter, professor at Wake Forest, for, for hopping on. Keith, you're the man. And, and Gary and I are, are heading to ACOS and Aspen. I don't think we're going to see Keith there, unfortunately. But we're going to come up with some really good episodes for Off the Grid while we're in, uh, in Aspen this weekend at ACOS. So definitely stay tuned for the next couple episodes. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. It was awesome. Awesome.